Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey everybody, it's Taylor from The Vergecast. Big interview show this week. Mark Cuban joined me to talk about everything. So in March at South by Southwest, I ended up at a dinner sitting next to Mark and we talked about net neutrality for 45 minutes. And I said, Mark, you gotta come on the show. We gotta do this on the record for an audience. He agreed. We've been trying to work out the timing ever since. He's a very busy guy, but he's finally here. And I tell you, we talked about everything. We did talk about net neutrality. He and I disagree about it. We talked about AI. Mark is really into AI. We talked about why he thinks Facebook's Libra is not only a bad idea, but dangerous. He actually thinks Libra is dangerous. Not cryptocurrency in general. Libra is dangerous. We talked about whether or not big tech should be broken up or regulated. You probably won't be surprised on what Mark thinks about that. We even talked a little about NBA free agency. Really wide-ranging conversation. Mark is super smart. He sees both sides of all these issues. It was great to get into it with him. Just sit back and enjoy the ride. It's Mark Cuban on the Birchcast. Mark Cuban, welcome to the Roachcast. How are you? Thanks for having me. So you and I hung out at South by Southwest several months ago, and I think we yeah, had it was epic, epic. <laughs> two things happened that uh, I will never forget. One, I saw you give a demo of Google Photos to Kara Swisher, which was incredible. <laughs> One of my favorite all-time moments. Uh, and okay. two, you and I got into like a forty-minute conversation on net neutrality. Yes, we did on both accounts. And I, I wanted to have you back on the show. It's great timing. It's just about a year since the net neutrality provisions were lifted. There's a bunch yep. of other stuff to talk about. You you went on CNBC there uh-huh. and you said Libra was a bad idea. There's about to be Libra yep. hearings in Congress. I want to talk to you about that for sure. And we've been talking a lot about the general spirit of, hey, maybe we should break up tech companies. You think that's a horrible idea. I definitely want to get your thoughts yep. on that. But I got to start at the start, man. You own an NBA team. This is the wildest NBA offseason in history. Crazy, isn't it? I loved it, loved it, loved it. We went from a super team with like four all-stars slash superstars to nobody having more than two superstars. And we tend to think the Mavericks have the two best young superstars in the game with Luka and KP, Kristaps Porzinga. So I'm excited. I, I think the, the West and the entire NBA is going to be wide open. And it's just going to be who stays the healthiest, who, you know, where do the surprises happen during the season? And then it's fair game for anybody. How do you feel about this notion that players get to just pick their teams now? That's kind of new. It, it, it is and it isn't, right? I mean, if you remember back in the day, like 2000, 2001, the Lakers tried to put together a super team with Gary Payton and Carl Malone. And yeah, they were longer in the tooth. They were you know, later in their careers. But, you know, it's, it's been tried before. 
you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. There's, there's always a little bit of luck involved. But the reality of the NBA is that we are more of a talent-driven league than any other professional sport anywhere in the world. You know, if you think about your favorite football team, if they lined up all 53 players, how many would you recognize? Same with your favorite baseball team or your favorite NHL team. If you think about your favorite NBA team, there's a good chance you can recognize most of the players, if not all 15 players on the roster. And so that is a big difference for us. And, and so when you have players that are visible, when they have big social media presence and following, when they're influencers, when they're integrated into pop culture, they're going to have more leverage. And that's the good news because the fact that they're, they're more visible and they're more impactful means that the league is more visible and more impactful. And having the talent drives the NBA and having them have more power is not a bad thing at all. But it does put the onus on teams to say, okay, what does it take to keep you happy so that you want to keep working here? But that's no different than than any job. The days of people having long-term careers in accounting or banking or programming are long gone. (laughs) They're all free agents. You have to get create a culture where people want to keep on working for your company. So I I just think you know what happened was inevitable, and it's a good thing for the NBA. I mean, last year, whatever team LeBron was on. And the Warriors were like the only teams that would sell out every seat, no matter where they go. Now there's going to be a lot of games, a lot of teams that draw sellouts everywhere they go. And so that's good for the NBA. I like it. I like the idea that healthy markets, I talked to a lot of self-driving car CEOs. All those companies are new. It's it's the same thing you're talking uh-huh. about. It's a bunch of engineers are like, you know, I'm tired of Google. We're going to start our own self-driving car company and like make this market better. Well, exactly. Now, that's a lot more expensive, <laughs> and it's harder to hire people there than probably than it is to get a free agent in the NBA, but the salaries might be the same, too. But yeah, it's the same thing, right? You know, where, where people have confidence in their talent and they know that they can be impactful, and particularly in a moving market like AI, um, then change is going to be inevitable. And, you know, I think we're just at the first inning in, in the AI world, so it's going to be exciting to see what happens there as well. All right. Well, healthy markets, is, I think, is going to be a theme of our Always conversation yep. today. So let's start with Libra because you literally were on CNBC yesterday. You yep. think Libra, uh, these are quotes, it's a big mistake and it's dangerous. I actually agree with you, but go ahead and explain why. So two different things, right? I'm not against cryptocurrency at all. I'm not against the distributed nature of cryptocurrency. Um, um, you know, I think the idea that there's no central control is kind of overblown, Um because there's so many forks and there's so many changes and, and um, administrational issues that, you know, they're, they're, there's always some external factor forcing control. But the problem I had with Facebook is Facebook is in a unique situation with 2.2 billion worldwide users. And by having those tentacles everywhere globally, they have the opportunity to be more impactful in, in countries where there is less stability. And when you get a company like Facebook and the power and the leverage and the and just the financial resources that they have, putting their tentacles into, not to pick on Africa, but African countries that have less stable currencies and government, to me, that creates issues that can lead to people dying. And so if Facebook were to say, you know what, we're going to start off in the United States with Libra, or we're going to start off in United States and Canada and Western Europe fine, go for it. Let's see what happens. But when you look to extend that into 2.2 billion users globally, 
the law of unintended consequences is inevitable and most likely it's going to be a negative output. And I, as I said in the interview, I think people will die as a result because when you start impacting a despot's currency manipulation opportunities and their ability to you know, tax and control whatever, where, where they can in their countries, that's when despots tend to take matters into their own hands and people die. Do you think this would be a different kind of conversation if it wasn't Facebook proposing such a thing? I mean, no, I, I mean, you can pick company X that had 2.2 billion users globally, and I'd say the same thing. So why do you think they're pushing forward with it so hard? If you question Facebook's ability to monetize data, personal data, and you think that there's a risk that that could go away, what other ways can they leverage 2.2 billion users? It's taking a cut of transaction fees. And creating your own worldwide global currency would be better than that. They're thinking big. I mean, I understand why they're doing it. They're in a unique position to, to literally create a global currency. And I can see why they'd want to do it. I mean, whether you're taking just a, a smidgen per transaction or you get to be the fiat, effectively the fiat currency outside the biggest countries in the world, why wouldn't you try that? And the reason why you wouldn't, and particularly in the types of countries I mentioned, is the risk of people dying. So how do you think this uh, kind of intersects with sort of regular crypto, if there is such a thing as regular crypto? The Bitcoins, the Ethereums? Like, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think it's two different things. I think it's a platform that they're using as an excuse to go become a global currency. I mean, think of it this way, right? What, what is the biggest play that you could ever possibly conceive of? creating your own global currency. <laughs> what, does, what does not exist right now? A global currency. Now, the United States dollar is kind of a fiat global currency that's accepted everywhere, but it's not digital. It's not like they used Bitcoin and said, you know what, there's already a base here. We're going to support it and we're going to extend it by allowing it to be used with transactions on Facebook globally. No. The biggest part of their user base is on lower powered phones with minimal connectivity and places around the globe that use their phones as the bank. It's global currency domination is the way I see it. And, you know, I'm not necessarily against that per se. More power to them for putting themselves in a position to be able to at least try it. But you have to consider what happens in the most remote elements of that currency chain, if you will. And that's where problems occur. So are you high on, on Bitcoin, Ethereum, the other cryptocurrencies out there? You know, that, that means a lot of different things, right? Are we talking about blockchain? I'm kind of disappointed in blockchain. It hasn't accomplished near as much as I thought it would. You know, at this point in 2019, there's not the number of applications that I thought would be based on it. But that's not to say that it can't create positive applications. So I am still a fan of blockchain. In terms of cryptocurrencies as a currency, you know, it's been a huge disappointment for everybody. And it's kind of evolved into being a store of value. How much is it worth? How much is someone willing to pay for it? Which makes it like gold, right? Mm -hmm. Gold's more of a religion than it is anything else. You know, people used to talk about gold as if, well, if everything went to hell in a handbasket, you know, fiat currencies can't sustain themselves, then people will turn for gold. Ain't nobody turning to gold <laughs> and carrying around gold bars, right? Yeah. Someone's going to be hitting you over the head with a gold bar maybe as a weapon, but, you know, turning it into gold coins, that's, that's just not going to happen. You know, food or whatever is going to be more valuable. And so cryptocurrencies have kind of evolved to, to be somewhat like what gold is or has become, which is a religion. You know, if you believe in it as a store of value and there's always somebody who'll pay a little bit more, then it's good to hold. If there's not somebody who'll pay more, 
then it's not good to hold. The difficulty of storing gold is the physical storage. The difficulty of storing cryptocurrencies is the physical storage. You're keeping it on a USB device. You're keeping it on, you know, somewhere and it gets, it's hackable and it's hard for normal people to, to use and, and remember how to deal with it. And so it's, you know, it's not something you can just put in a safe and, and remember because the, the complexity, what are you going to do? Put your passcode and your, your, keys, you know, on a printout in your safe, <laughs> that's not safe, you know, and so there's, there's so many complexities to cryptocurrencies that I don't think it's had near the impact a lot of people had hoped it would have. And then there's still, then there's the uncertainty of explaining to people the intrinsic value. I try to explain to people the intrinsic value of blockchain by saying, look, think of it in the days of Enron. If instead of just having Arthur Anderson as their accountants or their auditors, if you will, you had a blockchain-based auditing application so that every general ledger entry in their accounting system was reviewed on a distributed basis and by miners and approved, then you wouldn't have fraud from Enron. So there is some intrinsic value in the applications that miners can earn, if you will, but those applications aren't ubiquitous and they're hard to come by. And so I just think there's a lot of challenges for cryptocurrency, particularly for, for being an actual currency. Do you see uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Leader, put out a sure. New York Times op-ed saying, we don't actually need a privacy law in the United States. Blockchain will fix it. Blockchain will fix it because it's all distributed and no one can see it then, right? Yeah. <laughs> Effectively. That's, that's one way to turn technologists against each other, right? Because yeah. he's right. If blockchain is the underpinning of everything, then you truly don't. If everything, which won't happen, but if everything is built on blockchain, why do you need privacy laws? Well, I mean, his argument is you got data portability and competition. But it seemed to me like it was spiritual. It was, a, it was born of belief that blockchain will fix, because not everything will be on the blockchain. That's just no, reality. Of course not, right? What he's doing is just trying to be ironic, right? He's just trying to challenge it on its face. And that's good. You know, because at least, look, the concept that the minority leader is discussing blockchain in an op-ed as it relates to privacy is shocking in and of itself. <laughs> Nobody would have expected that to happen, right? That's true. More power to him for trying to play the angle. I know Kevin a little bit. I hope it was his angle and not something given to him in written form. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. All right. Let's talk about Facebook and net neutrality. Because Facebook okay. doing a currency is a big deal. Facebook going into these countries and saying, we're going to bring the people without bank accounts into the banking system through our currency is a big deal. It has some bad consequences, potentially, as you're pointing out. But their first attempt to do something like this was uh, Free Basics, where they went out and they gave internet access to people around the world, and they mm -hmm. zero-rated Facebook services. If you want to use Facebook, it was free. If you want to use something else, you maybe had to pay. This obviously steered a lot right. of people into Facebook. That's how they grew some of their user base. This, to me, is like a classic nightmare net neutrality situation. You don't have a lot of competition. Those are only countries with minimal access to the internet. So if anything, you can argue that the flip side of that is not that they were forced to use Facebook, that they, but rather they wouldn't have had access to the internet otherwise. And I think that's primarily how it was used as the primary internet access. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. That's like saying a web browser back in the day, you know, shouldn't have been allowed because it gave, it was the only way to get access to the internet. Let me, let me just make the analogy to where we are right now, which is in the United States, which is AT&T owns a whole lot of mobile phones, uh, mobile phone plans and subscribers. They're going to put their thumb on the scale and say, hey, watching HBO, which we now own, is free to you. And watching something on Comcast is not. 
right? By the way, disclosure, right. Comcast investor in the company. I gotta say it. Everybody knows it. There it is. That is. It seems like the same thing, right? AT&T is going to say, look at our content services. No, no, no. Because one is internet access, which can be argued as a utility. There's nothing anywhere near being a, like a utility in watching HBO versus Comcast versus Netflix versus Hulu versus Snap Crackle versus any other streaming over-the-top service. So you're saying the zero rating that the big carriers are about to start doing, and they seem very obvious they're about to start doing it, is not nearly the same problem as... Facebook rebate. No, not even close, right? If, if you were just so beholden to Game of Thrones that you need HBO or you can't live, all right, maybe, right? But other than that, you don't even know what, whether or not there's going to be a show on HBO that you like. Doesn't that affect the secondary market? Like if you say there's access, which is one market and it should be healthy and there should be lots of competitors and there's kind of not enough, but now those competitors are going to get vertically integrated with the content services. So you're against free shipping, you're against free shipping. This is the beginning of our conversation in South by Southwest. I like I brought us back to it. <laughs> so you're saying this is basically just free shipping. That if you buy AT&T, you get free shipping for HBO shows. The primary difference is there's no marginal cost for an incremental right. bid. There's always going to be the option of offering a free digital product, whether it's content or otherwise. Because you know, when it comes to some type of delivery mechanism, because the marginal cost is zero. Whenever you, the marginal cost of delivery of something is zero, just like software back in the day when you had bloatware on PCs. You know, you, everybody got Mavis Beacon typing, <laughs> whether they liked it or not. Not everybody learned how to type, maybe they should have, but how many, how many packages were on a PC when you bought it? How many apps are on your phone when you buy it now? Is texting, is SMS, something that's an enticement to use or has it become just so ubiquitous and so will all the other digital content that everybody else is going to offer that one just offsets the other so i believe that internet access is like a critical human need right now in america right like it's very hard to participate in our economy unless you have access if those prices are going up because more and more things are getting bundled onto the service or a you know a huge provider has to pay for more and more content that they're trying to package into the service, those prices are going up. I don't know that's a, that's a good thing. See, that, that's, that's where we disagree, right? Because, the mar- again, the marginal cost for content is minimal, right? Now, great content, which you can argue is hard to create, that's a different argument. It doesn't entice people to choose one carrier over the other because it's very subjective. Do you think, but is that proven out? I, I think we're just at the dawn of finding out. It's proven out. Name one YouTube, you know, it's hard. Creating great content is yeah. hard. Not everybody watches Game of Thrones. You know, what else after that on HBO? What is there? Well, sure, but you see the, the dollar amounts being thrown around for Friends. I mean, but AT&T is paying a lot of money to get Friends on that streaming service because they know it'll pull people away from Netflix. Yeah, and, there, and there's a whole lot of money not paid for, for thousands, if not millions of hours of other content. It's very subjective. Look, let's look at it a different way. If there was enough value to internet service and I wanted to buy you a car and give away a car, Right. The history of, of giving away add-ons to entice people to buy a product is eons, right? It's centuries. It's not, you know, the digital era only. It's just that, you know, what's changed in the digital era is that the marginal cost of delivery is zero. And so people bundle a lot more easily and a lot more efficiently than they used to. You used to have to come to the bank to get that toaster. Now you don't, you know, you just go online and you sign up or you take your phone and you add your SIM card. And I guess the SIM card is enough of a complexity that, you know, just adding digital content is not enough of an enticement. The golden age of giving away toasters, there were a lot more banks in America then. Do you think there's enough competition for access right now? 
is there enough competition? For, I think 5G is going to change that considerably. With 5G, you're not going to be regionalized like you have been recently. You know, now all of them are looking to do national networks with 5G, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, but they, I mean, they have national networks now. I mean, there's not as much overlap, but there'll be even more now. And historically, we always talked about net neutrality being a problem because the carriers were localized, right? right? And we talked, to, you know, and that's no longer the case. And with 5G, you're going to see people replacing the, cutting the broadband cord. So that broadband, Comcast and AT&T and anybody who's got fixed wire charter, who's got fixed wired broadband is in trouble. And so don't you think it's a good thing to try to entice people to go to wireless over fixed broadband when the cost will be less and the delivery? I do. I think those promises are pretty nascent. And the spectrum allocation right now is not great for that stuff. Yeah, but that's the same as any um, emerging technology. That's true. But do you think, uh, you know, right now we're provisioning millimeter wave for 5G. A lot of people say, hey, we need mid-band spectrum to make this really work. Do you think we're getting that right to make this competition actually work out the way you're saying? We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out, right? That, that's why Verizon got, did what they did, right? And tried to get out of the fixed broadband yeah. business. So I ask everybody this question. I'll ask you. I will tell you no one has ever had a good answer to this question, but take your best shot. Is 5G a race? And if so, why? Well, no, and it should be, right? If there's standards, there's standards. There's no such thing as a race. It's, it's an investment curve, yeah. right? Who's putting it in the most, who's investing the, the quickest? So no, it's not a race. It, it, it's a timetable based off of capital allocation. How's that for an answer? It's great. It's, that's what I think too. But I, I talked to wireless CEOs. <laughs> I talked to Ajit Pai is out there being like, we got to win this race. Because if you're a CEO and it's a race, then you're allowed to win. And then if you win, <laughs> or if you're at least competing well, you get paid that's more, true. right? I also think you, you get to push the government towards maybe not looking at what you're doing as closely as possible, which I think is of high interest. So that, that begs the question, what should the government be looking at that you think they're not looking at? Right now, obviously, there's a lot of question about what equipment providers are going to be allowed to make 5G equipment. So that's it's clearly out there. Well, yeah, with Huawei, yeah, that's a different question, though. Well, yeah, but it's it's all part of the, the race dynamic. And then you see a lot of, particularly sure. with millimeter wave, you see a lot of, hey, we, we're going to change the way we allow permitting to go and where the towers can go. And like, here's how we're going to run auctions for Spectrum. Yeah. Right. That, that's more revenue generation for, for local governments or state governments than anything else. Yeah. I just, I mean, I literally the headlines are always, who's winning the race to fight? And I'm like, why, what happens if we come in second? Well, that, well, that's a function of media as much as anything, too, yeah. right? Well, I mean, it's good. I mean, I will say that we have rejected the race dynamic, but I don't control the entire media, unfortunately. Not yet. <laughs> well, yeah, you get my point, though, right, on terms of the media, because, you know, a headline saying 5G is not a race, it's boring. It's just a capital alloca- allocation yeah. issue. So how are you feeling on Sprint, T-Mobile? I mean, I just want to st- stick on, on sort of internet access broadly, right? Like, sure. more competition is better. You're saying, look, this bundling, throttling, paid prioritization is all it's all free shipping i don't agree with you but i I understand the argument i think it's a smart one but you're looking at more consolidation in the industry right sprint wants to buy t-mobile again i'm not as concerned there because there's a finite amount of spectrum right when the the spectrum is allocated then it's just who does the best job and as long as that spectrum is national i mean it's global but within the within the realm of what we're talking about then you know it's just a question of who uses it how good a job they do of implementing their version of 5G. And then, look, this is not just a 10-year question. It's a 20-, 30-, 40-year question, and what comes next? And so there'll be new technological advancements and new ways of using spectrum, and we'll see what comes after that. So I'm not as terrified of the merger simply because 
you have to have the capital in order to allocate it wisely, in order to make mistakes, in order to iterate. If you don't have the capital, that will cause a fall off in competition, which is not what you want. And here, the capital that you're referring to is the spectrum that Sprint holds. It's the purchase of the spectrum, and it's also the the technology to make it work. And it's also the money to to market it. It's also the money to support the users. It's also the money, you know, to continue to upgrade it as technology advances. So I think my favorite summary of this deal is Sprint has good spectrum and T-Mobile has good executives. So we need to combine those. To me, it sounds like maybe Sprint should just get some better executives. Yeah, but how easy is that? You're in the business. I'm asking you, how easy is that? <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, look, if it was all easy, they would be competing and there, this wouldn't be an issue, right? Because they'd all be running a great business, but that's just not the way it works. Change is, change is inevitable, right? We, you know, the conversation we're having about net neutrality today is far different than it was seven years ago and different than it was 10 years ago, 12 years, 13 years ago when I started talking about it. And so it's changed dramatically. The players are different which is the antithesis of the expectation for net neutrality um, fans, you know, because if net neutrality was truly as big and bad an issue as everybody expected, the players would be exactly the same and the dominant players would be even more dominant. And that's just not what has happened. I disagree with you there. I think that the conversation has always been about Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, like, Charter. They're still in the mix. They're still doing weird stuff. they're, They're in the mix, but their power is declining rapidly. In favor of Being whom? in the mix is not the same as dominating. The power shifting from Comcast to AT&T does, does not seem like a great... Right? That, that's, for the average consumer, that's just, okay, another giant corporation is overcharging me. No, but AT&T is desperate right now. Right. You know, Comcast, I mean, when you look at any of these companies, look at, look at the way the stock market is treating them. No investors are saying, boy, these guys are in great position to dominate. And that dominance is going to return so much in profits to our shareholders that let's just invest more and run their stock price up. It's the exact opposite. You look at what they're doing and like, okay, so why is AT&T buying Time Warner? You know, why is Comcast trying to figure out what it's going to do with wireless and not sure? Why is Dish in a position where they own Spectrum and that's a good thing, but not everybody's sure how they're going to get value out of it? You know, why is Charter being questioned about their future? You know, all these things are are coming into play. You know, a lot of what we looked at as being the dominant element of their business video is crashing in value. I mean, Netflix has just destroyed them. And so the value add that you're talking about bringing in terms of bundling, (laughs) the value of that programming is just deteriorating by the minute. Yeah. It's live. I mean, this is why you're in the live sports business. It's the one thing that'll hold. Yeah, exactly, and 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 why you're in the news business, right? Yeah. Those are the currency of the realm right now in terms of getting people to traditional media. But the power element is is changed dramatically. We didn't even talk about you know when when we were talking in South by Southwest, we were discussing forbearance, and to me, that's still the biggest risk of the whole net neutrality thing. If the current administration decides to unforbear what was for for forbeared. <laughs> well, so let me just explain to the audience really quick what forbearance means. When they moved to Title II, which was the net neutrality rules, they said, we got a bunch of rules here for landline phones. We're going to forbear them. We're going to not apply them. And we're just going to use the ones that let us do net neutrality. And this was a very long and complicated legal drama that led to that moment. Yep. And you're saying, well, the risk is that they will change their mind. Yeah, the, those keys are what was forbeared, right? Things like pricing, applications, so you can't change prices without it being approved by the government. There's a whole long list. 
I think there's like 800 of them, right? And if they were to undo those forbearances, if that's the right word, the administration would have an incredible hammer over not just telecom companies, but the entire internet. And to me, that is the biggest risk of all. But so, I mean, you look at right now, Senator Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, the president, they're saying the social media companies are censoring conservatives, which I do not think is true, but they're saying it. They like right. saying it. Isn't this a power they should want? This is where I, I don't get it. They want to regulate the the platform companies that sit over the access layer, but then they've got Pi at the FCC saying we have to completely deregulate the access layer. It's the same thing conceptually. So the the question becomes who truly understands what the forbearance what's been forbeared. As you Pi obviously does, but he's he wants an open internet, not a net neutrality based internet, and so he's not going to say anything. Who else would? Well, I mean, Pi is out there being like the real problem is Google. Like, don't worry about these access providers. We should. We should. Google is the one who controls what you see. I mean, I think we've come to understand, at least from my perspective, is that if you're going to retain a position in this administration, there's a certain amount of kissing up that has to occur. <laughs> you think? It seems very obvious after this weekend with, with Trump's tweets about who should go home that some people are just going to yeah. stay quiet. So you think that's just so, a I game? Mean, everybody, not just some people, everybody. Yeah. You're saying that's all just part of the game. That we're we're going to yeah, we're going to. We're going to lean into this random conservative bias meme so we can get the outcomes we want. Yeah, which, I mean, and I actually gave a talk to the young Republicans in, um, in Dallas two weeks ago, and that was one of the questions that came up. And, you know, there was this big, not big, minimal controversy about whether the NBA should call people who actually own the equity in a team an owner or a governor. And on one hand, they were kind of trying to, the same group was ridiculing the NBA for not using the term owner. But on the flip side, they don't want Twitter and Facebook to be owners of their own businesses, right? Um, so I had a little fun with the irony there. But the, re- the reality is there is certainly hypocrisy in the position that we're, we're all for ownership of companies and we're all for free markets, but unless, it's, unless we don't like it yeah. and we don't like how Twitter and Facebook are handling distribution of, of news and information. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's arguing that, that Twitter and Facebook are doing a good job or that Google is doing a good job with, with YouTube. I think the argument is, well, these are private companies. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. If it's not a good job, then effectively, like you said, for with an open market, you take the good with the bad, right? Yeah, and I think, well, the question is, is there too much consolidation in that market? If there isn't a great competitor to Facebook, well, your choice is to regulate. I mean, fa- we, the first thing we started talking about is Facebook starting a world-scale currency, right? And Mark Zuckerberg right. is like, I want to have a free speech court. Like He's talking about he right. runs a country. Is that just too big? Two different things, right? So what I'm saying is, you know, remember when I talked about Libra, I mentioned that if it was just the United States or Western European countries, I'd be fine with it. Yeah. And so, no, it's not too big because if you look at usage numbers and users' numbers in the United States, it's declining. And so it's not like Facebook is this juggernaut that keeps on absorbing more and more of our country and we need to stop it. It's the exact opposite. It's declining in the United States, yet we want to stop it. You know, the point I try to get across in that CNBC interview is part of what we're trying to do in regulating Facebook, a big, I think Josh Hawley has been a proponent of this, and Senator Warner as well, is, you know, we want to limit Facebook monetizing and using the information that, that they have about us, right? And part of that is not being able to sell or distribute that information, as, as we saw with Cambridge Analytics. To me, we want Facebook publishing or distributing 100% of their data as opposed to retaining 100% of their data privately 
because they are big enough. If you're talking about being too big, they are big enough that that information would be incredibly valuable if no one else were able to access it, even if via purchase. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. That by, by siloing it to Facebook, they would have such a competitive advantage over everybody and anybody. Even if you broke them up into multiple companies, Instagram is big enough, as an example, that they would have such a huge advantage in business by being able to silo that data that they would become more powerful by breaking them up, not less. But wouldn't that power be in opposition? So let's say you broke off Instagram from Facebook and WhatsApp from mm-hmm. Facebook. Wouldn't And you're saying, well, those companies would be huge and powerful anyway, but at least right. they would be huge and powerful in competition with each other, which no. you couldn't create right no. now out of, out of nothing. It wouldn't matter. You don't think so? No, it's not like Facebook and Google prevent each other from doing anything. <laughs> that is true. Did you, uh, There's a great Bloomberg piece today. It literally just came out, so there's no way you read it. But uh, today about how uh, uh, Google's control over the YouTube ad market has just destroyed companies in its wake. Like AppNexus was a great company on track to IPO and be a big company their business was literally destroyed because Google said, well, we're going to take control over the YouTube ad, ad ecosystem. But that is the danger, yep. right? I mean, the danger is Google can just keep doing that and Facebook can just keep doing yeah, but that. They, but YouTube as a standalone company could do the same thing. At least the, I guess the consumers in this case would be ad buyers, right? This gets us into a conversation about artificial intelligence, okay? right? Because that's what's driving all the advertising decisions and ecosystems, right? This is not... 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where we were sitting around at broadcast.com and saying, you know, okay, here's how we're going to do advertising. Here's the markets we're going to go after. You know, now all these big companies with all that data, data is so valuable and so leverageable. They have scientists that just say, how can we optimize our returns? Mm-hmm. Period, end of story, and let the data drive us from there. And so we've gone from, you know, experienced executives, for better or worse, making decisions to data driving the decisions using AI. And whether your WhatsApp is a standalone company, Instagram is a standalone company, Facebook as a smaller company, YouTube and et cetera, broken up out of Google, AI is gonna be driving all the advertising decisions and a lot of the business decisions. And not all neural networks are the same, not all machine learnings gonna get you to the same destination, but you're not gonna be able to, to prevent X, you know, X, Y, you know, the, the top five um, AI scientists from jumping around companies, from going to for conferences together, from working with each other, talking to each other. And that's going to drive the decision making mix more than the old school perspective that, well, if we break them up into multiple companies, the executives will make independent decisions and those independent decisions will take on their, their own wins and losses or successes and failures and we'll go from there. Those days are gone. This is about as close to an argument that there exists an objective business truth as I've ever heard, right? You're saying, okay, the computers are going to do it. There's but one set of right answers. They're going to divine those right answers, and these companies are all going to look the same. No, I don't think there's one set of right answers. I just think it creates a new set of problems, right? So we haven't gotten into bias in AI. We haven't gotten into auditing black box. We haven't gotten into the fact that neural networks, we fully don't even understand how they get to the decisions that they get to get get to in nonlinear environments. You know, so there's a whole realm of conversations that we can have about the good, bad, and ugly um, of AI, but it's a completely different set of decisions than the viewpoints we took of open market and free markets versus regulated markets. The better answer, I think, is, okay, when do we get to government as a service so government audits the AI algorithms and can at least understand the choices that were made 
that got to this neural network making this decision? And when are we going to offer government as a service so that if all that data under blockchain or not is available, then it's either available to everybody or nobody. So there's just, we're just starting to create, you know, 22nd century discussions, <laughs> you know, early in the 21st century. And so we're, we're just moving into a different realm. And I, I don't think we've really begun to accept the fact that when we talk about AI having a dramatic change, everybody says, yeah, it's going to, but most, most people who get into it don't understand AI. And I'm far from being an expert, but I will say I've done the tutorials and I've read a lot. <laughs> I can sit down and do a three-layer neural network and do some machine learning and, and understand how it works. And I did that because it's critically important to you know, the future of business and the future of regulation and the future of government for that matter, in this country. So you're saying, you know, in order for government to effectively regulate the next version of the open market, A, they're going to need to understand it, which is always an open question. Always the case. But B, right. you're saying that the next step is, okay, I've written this, this AI system that does this thing. I need, I need the check mark from the government. How can I just have the government come in as a service, do this job and get out? Yes and no, right? So there's truthful elements to that in that it's not so much that you'll need government as a service to come in and check it. I mean, services that we offer that are driven traditionally by bureaucrats should be government as a service going forward. But what I'm saying is just like we had rules for telecom, 1934 was it when they started, when it was new, when they were starting to try to manage it, we're going to have to have a way where the neural networks that are created can be audited in some way, shape or form. Business competition will be so dramatically different 30 years from now, mm -hmm. you know, 40 years from now, assuming something crazy doesn't happen, that it'll be much more algorithmically driven, much more neural network driven, and there's going to have to be ways that we can publish and audit those, particularly as we want to look for bias, particularly as we want to question domain expertise. That's why I've always said, you know, or, or said recently that going forward 10 years from now, let's say, there'll be more value to a liberal arts major than to a basic computer science major simply because domain expertise and critical thinking skills will be desperately needed as we evaluate neural networks. I think that is a rebalancing that is somewhat long overdue. So you just invested in an AI company, Node. How do you evaluate that kind uh -huh. of investment going in when you think about these future costs that might arise? When you look at Node.io, effectively what they're able to do is simplify the process of implementing AI in a business. It may be something like where the Mavericks use it, where we'll say, okay, here, we're going to plug in all the attributes of our season ticket buyers, and then we're going to go out and based off of other data that we're able to accumulate, we're going to have Node.io look for the commonalities and tell us which prospects are most likely to buy season tickets. It might be in other businesses that say, we're going to look at our best writers. We're going to have, we're going to put in, plug in the data as best we can ascribe it to each writer. And then we're going to look at this population of potential writers and say, based off of what node.io tells us, these are most likely the best writers to hire for the future based off of what we're trying to accomplish today. All businesses, large and small, but even the smallest of businesses have access to their data, but the smallest don't understand AI enough to implement any type of machine learning or neural network solutions. Node.io, they call themselves an intuition engine, meaning that based off of what we know about a company, whatever category you want us to look at, inventory, sales, hiring, whatever, here's your best place to approach it first. Compare that to the way we used to do it. Okay, you're a sales rep. 
Now you understand this advertising business, go out and find our best prospects and sell them. Now it's going to be, okay, we've looked at the universe of actual customers. We looked at the universal universe of actual prospects for ad sales. Tell us which, one, which ones have the best probability of being buyers and send our salespeople to those first. And the effectiveness increases significantly. I guess when you look at that market, right, this is another one where I'm like, okay, there's a lot of competitors right now, right? There's a lot of businesses starting up. There's a lot of places for you to invest your dollars. So the first question right. is, how do you pick? And then the second question is, every AI company that we talk to is like the name of the game here is data. We need this like expansive data set sure. to train our algorithms. Once you get ahead, doesn't that immediately shrink the, is this winner take all just like everything else? No. There's a finite amount of resources available within each segment of data, right? There's no ubiquity of data within a company that solves all your problems. So you've got a seg. So I just, I took a, a Coursera class on AI. I forget the name from I forget the name of the professor. But what he said, which is right on. First, you've got to know what problem you're going to solve. Yeah. And you can't just say maximizing profitability and scale for your company is a problem you're trying to solve. <laughs> so it, it's got to be discrete enough that you can you can put together a solution using AI, and or any. You know, AI can mean it encompasses a lot of different things. It could be machine learning, neural networks, different types of neural networks, GANs, RNNs, CNNs. I mean, there's just, it's never ending and the research out there is never ending. And so there's a lot of complexity to picking the problem and solving the problem, which is why so many companies fail at it. So you don't, you're not seeing a widespread, you're not seeing all this incredible momentum where every company, there's just this light bulb going on and all of a sudden the profitability is going through the roof. You just haven't seen that at all. What you have seen is a lot of companies, a lot of the biggest companies like Google and Facebook who have been doing this for a decade have been going through and failing enough times that they're starting to get results. Those companies have been out there spending, you know, trillions, zillions of dollars on AI talent, knowing that the talent is going to drive the results. Smaller companies aren't in a position to do that. And even medium to big companies who there's a lot of big companies who have failed at it. And so the, there's a lot who have failed and they're not quite sure what to do. And that's where companies like Node can come in and come in and help. All right. We're going to take a quick break for an ad. We'll be right back with Mark Cuban. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn, it's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I want to come back to media because that's, I think, sure. where my heart is. Hopefully, where your heart is. My heart's everywhere. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. You've you've got more you've got more stakes in the ground than I do. I just got this one little media company that I'm trying to make happen. Um, it's streaming war season, right? You did broadcast.com. You participated in what yep. I would say was the sort of HD war of how are we going to distribute higher quality content yep. at that time. It's Disney Plus. It's Warner Media. It's Netflix. Yep. It's I mean, just down Apple TV Plus for whatever reason they're doing it. Yep. Uh, I have a thing called the Go90 scale of Doom streaming services that goes from <laughs> zero to Go90. And if, you, if you've gone 90, you're dead. And it just seems like more things are closer to 90 than not. How do you see this playing right. out? Okay, so first you have to understand the value of streaming. And it's changed. There's more bandwidth. And the, the cost of bandwidth is now minimal, and that's changed everything. So the marginal cost of distribution, like we talked about earlier, has dropped to almost nothing. And so the way I look at all streaming is the way I used to define TV. The definition of television has, was, and continue to be the best alternative to boredom, period, end of story. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how much will people pay not to be bored in aggregate? So it's not about any one streaming service. It's about how much are you willing to pull out of your pocket and write checks for or have debited from your account to not be bored. And I don't know what that exact number is, but I know it's going to be more than the cost of the five top non-Go90 <laughs> over-the-top streaming services that you mentioned. Yeah, but this isn't just the cable bundle. Is Are we just headed towards another cable bundle? Well, that's what Amazon hopes. That's what they're trying to do, and I think Apple's going to try the same thing. In some respects, yes, but you're not tied. You know, when television was a cure for boredom 15 years ago, you were tied inside your house. You're no longer tied inside your house with streaming. I mean, when we had broadcast.com, it was always, you know, the minute we can leave the house, Katie bar the doors because we're going to dominate everything. And we couldn't convey that to Yahoo when, when they bought us. Just be patient for wireless because wireless was very nascent, just starting to happen. And then we would own everything because we had, you know, back then we had hundreds of internet radio stations. We were Pandora, Spotify, YouTube, you, you name it all in one. And, you know, now it's coming to fruition where the cure for boredom is anywhere and everywhere. You know, there was a time when you were in office and you went to somebody's office and there was a receptionist at the front desk and they were playing solitaire. You know, now people play games, but most people stream, yeah. you know, or watch people streaming games. And, and so it's a cure for boredom. And how much is that worth? Is it worth more than the old cable bundles? Yeah, because it can go anywhere in the world. And so I think the amount of money that we'll spend to not be bored is is rising exponentially. And so you think that there's not going to be subscription fatigue, that people aren't, there's not a cap. That, There'll be a hassle factor, yeah. right? Jumping between subscriptions, just like we get into app fatigue, right? So the problem won't be the money, because I think that there will be an equilibrium. People will realize that, you know, I like this one better than this one, so I'll pay more and pay less. And then the providers themselves just like they negotiated fees from the MVPDs in terms of cost per subscriber, and ESPN got more than Access TV did, at least for a while, not always. 
will find that equilibrium. Like Netflix is going to hold firm at 15. It's on my scale of zero to 90, right? Netflix is about as close to zero as it can. Right. They're successful. They got a huge audience. They're making shows. Artists love working with them. I would say Disney Plus, and they have to launch. It has to work, but right. they have a good track record. They own MLB Media or whatever. Bam. Look at it this way. Think of everything as an arbitrage on time. Okay. How do you value your time? All the decisions, because life is becoming a service, right? We're, we're talking about streaming, which is a service to avoid boredom. We're talking about you know, connectivity, which is a service to connect. We're talking about government. We're talking about AI. Everything is starting to become valued as an arbitrage in our time. How much do I value my time? Can I pay somebody less to do what I need to have done to increase the value of my time? And so if you look at it that way, then it's not about any individual streaming service. It's not about, you know, service fatigue. It's about, you know, what simplifies my life. That's why privacy is much more of a media issue than it is a personal issue. People don't wake up in the morning worrying about their privacy. We hear about all these privacy breaches and data breaches, yet you don't know people who have been negatively affected by them, do you? I mean, when people are negatively affected by these issues, they email us, like they email reporters. So I do. Their name being part of a breach is one thing. Mm -hmm. Having somebody steal their data and take advantage of them and steal their identity, that's another thing. That's rare. We're all, all of us have been part, have been part of a data breach, whether you know it or not, right? But whether or not you've been impacted by it is a completely different question. And so the trade-off between the risk of you being, you know, one of the chosen few whose identity is unfortunately and tragically stolen, that risk is small. On the other hand, the value of your time that is saved, the arbitrage of your time, the return can be incredibly high. And so when it comes down to, okay, using facial recognition, I can get in someplace and get out of someplace and get, buy whatever I want. So I spend more time with my kids. Am I willing to risk that, you know, some foreign government's going to be able to identify me? And yeah, I'm willing to risk that. My data might be stolen and my credit card might be more at risk than it otherwise would have been. But yeah, I trust my credit card company enough, or maybe I need to find a better one. And that's a marketing edge for, or marketing angle for, for a credit card company, or maybe it's a sales pitch for blockchain, <laughs> but I'm willing to, to take that trade off because I value my time. Time's the one asset I can't buy. I can't get back. I value my time more than anything. And I value my time with my kids, you know, or whatever it is I love to do more than anything at all. And so am I willing to take incremental risks that I really haven't been able to quantify because I don't know anybody who's been affected and, and take those risks and accept them versus simplifying my life and making it easier? Of course I will. So when we talk about streaming fatigue or even app fatigue, it's all within the context of how do I retain and value my time the most? What's my ARB on time? And so I think that's the point that people miss when they go through this. Time is the most valuable asset you don't own. And until someone takes time away from us and causes us to spend ungodly amounts of hours doing things we don't want to do, I mean, we're overblowing the risk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a deep connection between you saying it's the cure for boredom, which is wasted time, and time is the most valuable asset. That's probably yep. like a philosophy PhD thesis out there, but <laughs> right, like that is a rich vein. We could go another five hours just on that alone, probably. But no there's a deep connection between I need to pay this money to kill this time, and time is my most valuable asset. I'm willing to trade some privacy for it. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You talk about the ultimate irony or hypocrisy, but it's true. 
right? Because, you know, when we, when we consume content, we think we're doing something. When we entertain ourselves, we're, we're creating value for our time. And that's a positive in, in our ledger of life so far. So just to put a bow on, on, on the media stuff, how do you see streaming wars shaking out? Who do, you think, who do you think are some obvious winners and losers? I think it's no different than cable. You know, I think great content will, will survive. And come, there, there's like four companies, give or take. So there's HBO, there's Netflix, there's Disney. You know, there's those three or four companies that have a feel for making great content. And great content, great storytelling will always drive everything. When you see volume content and people just creating in it for the sake of creating in it, there's going to be challenges there. So if you're going to pick winners, then it's those three companies. Creating great content is hard and it's expensive. And to a certain extent, it's a numbers game. You have to create a lot of it, which is expensive, but that's what it takes to build a library. If Disney hadn't spent hundreds of billions of dollars on content, they wouldn't be Disney. You know, Netflix is criticized for overspending, you know, and spending beyond their means. But that's the only way when someone asks, what are we, we going to watch tonight? What are we going to do tonight? Let's, you know, let's see what's on. Now let's see what's on means, okay, television for 70, 72% of households plus virtual MVPDs. And then everybody else, which is primarily Netflix. And then we'll see if HBO can stay there and then Disney Plus can get there. How do you think Apple's going to do? I don't know. I'm, I, do you know what Apple's going to do? <laughs> no, I, it seems very confusing. They seem like they're spending a lot of money, uh, but they haven't, yeah, they haven't I mean, said a lot. It's hard. Look, okay, I always use YouTube and Google as the example. No one's got more data and history of data than Google and YouTube when it comes to viewership, right? Name one YouTube hit. You mean like a YouTube original hit? I mean, you've got, you've got creators. And look at the life of a, of a YouTube creator. You have no life. If you're not streaming continuously, you're gone. Yeah. We write about this all the time. They burn out. They burn out really, yeah, they burn out really fast. And they all hate YouTube, which is remarkable. Yes. It, I mean, because they, they just extract more and more and more, which again, let's go back to breaking up these big companies. I went and talked to Google, I don't know, five, six years ago and said they had turned into Microsoft and they hated me and not invited <laughs> me back. And they said, why? I said, because you put a tax on people called search. Microsoft used to have Office and Windows. That was their tax. And they tried a thousand other things and they all failed. Now Xbox has become stronger. And now cloud uh, with Satya Nandela has become a, a lot stronger. But with Google, they have search. What else? Right. They're making a ton of money, but that's just basically advertising, which effectively is search on YouTube. But all these resources, and they haven't been able to create anything else. Right, that monetizes the way search does. I mean, they've made other products that but people that's like. that's AI. Yeah. That's AI. That's data. That's their benefit. That's where they've been able to really take advantage of the technology and the, the fact that they've been doing this as long as anybody. And so they're able to monetize in ways that only Facebook and Amazon and some other, you know, a very few others are able to. But the point being that creating great content is hard. And it's not just about having data. So creating great content is not a function of AI. There is no such thing as content as a service. And so going back again to the streaming wars, it's not really a war yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, you've got only a few companies that are great at creating content. And the mere fact that you have scale doesn't mean anything. Just look at Google. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting take on it because Google has tried and they, you know, they, they just, it was just VidCon and they were 
making promises to creators and the creators like, well, what if we all just go to TikTok? All the way back. That goes all the way back to net neutrality. Yeah. Look, the nightmare scenario is Comcast or Charter. Someone says, well, look, okay, YouTube is free now, right? And every other video service will, will cost you a lot. That YouTube monopoly gets even more powerful. But that's effective. That's effectively giving, paying Google through advertising, right? That's an ad share where they get zero share. Yeah. But I mean, what you want, the creators want is another platform to go to. That's why they're all excited about TikTok right now. And they've tried, right? So the safe harbor back in the day when, when we were negotiating the DMCA was meant to protect the Bell Atlantics of the world where, you know, if somebody posted something on, let's just say there's some horrific person that's posting kitty porn, but no one sees it. It's not public facing, it's private, but somebody finds out the authorities arrest this guy and sees that it's all, he stored all his kitty porn on Bell Atlantic. That's what the safe harbors were there to protect. Then YouTube turned it around and said, no, we're going to make this public facing. And then the EFF got behind them and said, okay, we're going to protect you through safe harbors rules. Well, safe harbor has backfired on the entire internet because instead of it opening the door for there being many YouTube-like services, there's two. There's Vimeo and there's YouTube and there's who else? Yeah, and I don't think Vimeo counts. I don't think there's no creators who are run into Vimeo. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're just, but it's just a place to store that has, that's public-facing, right? Sure. But if you got rid of the safe harbors and it became more like traditional over-the-top, right? It's not like HBO Go could just say, okay, we're going to be like YouTube and we're going to just every, let everybody upload. They just won't do that, right? Because that kind of diminishes the value of their own content. But if you said you had to have a license for any content that's posted publicly, not privately, but publicly, like you do on traditional television, then all of a sudden you wouldn't see all this nastiness that you see. You wouldn't see all the political realm. You wouldn't see the beheadings that you see. All those are a function of safe harbor. Now, if safe harbor really helped the general population and really you know, benefited the internet as a whole, okay, you take the bad with the good. But that's not been the case. The only true beneficiary of safe harbor is YouTube. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, safe, safe harbor is a copyright law, right? I don't think ISIS is out there making copy like making copyright claims on beheading videos right but you have to have a license so is it now you have to have it's up to the copyright owner to do a takedown notice oh i see you you want to move the burden to the uploader so you have to you have to prove that you have you own it first no i want to move the burden to the relationship right so that there has to be a, a contract between the two before you can upload as opposed to under safe harbor the burden is on the copyright owner and it's the same on Twitter, right? I had a situation where somebody got a hold of one of my personal pictures and I wanted to use uh, just, and not because I cared about the picture, but I was just curious if I could use the DMCA takedown notices to have it removed. It is the worst process possible. Yeah. I couldn't get it removed simply because it wasn't already posted on a website somewhere publicly. It's just ridiculously bad. And so the, the safe harbor laws under the DMCA only protect YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, right? I'll expand it from just YouTube. Companies that get value from just the general population uploading, you just use user-generated content. And so that's the problem. The risk-reward, the value proposition originally of the safe harbor laws were to make the internet open so that the internet could grow and consumers can get the full value of the internet. That's not what's happened. What's happened is, it's become a way for big companies to get bigger and for bad content to get horrific, to turn from bad to horrific, and it only benefits a few companies. It hasn't benefited the overall internet, and it's time for us to take a second look at it. We write a lot about how copyright law is a stand-in for every other yep. law because it's 
It's all we got. Yeah. So you uh, you have a revenge porn problem. What where's where do revenge porn lawyers start? They start at copyright yep. law, and it's that seems pretty upside down to basically everyone. But it, it's where we are. Yeah, and and it's not the way it was intended because I was there when it was being discussed, and it was certainly not what was intended at all. And so it got flipped around. And look, I'm a big supporter of EFF.org, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it it just got bastardized to the point now where. The net result is we have this horrific content. We have fake news. We're going to have deep, um, deep fake videos that are even worse. I mean, I invested in a company, Synthesia.ai, because they're great at deep fakes so that we would use, they would only be used for business and that we would watermark everything so that they'd always be detectable. But deep fakes go away completely if you get rid of the safe harbor laws. Yeah. All right. Let's end on a happy note because I've taken up almost an hour of your okay. time. Beyond AI, which you've talked about a lot. Give me two or three places where you're excited about investment. It seems like investment in consumer startups kind of over. Where is the big action now? So personalized medicine, plant-based foods, AI, as we discussed, but um, with vertical applications. Look, at its base, AI is impacting everything. It's like saying you can't talk about the internet, you know, 20 years ago. The internet, in fact, impacted yeah. everything. I'm, I'm investing in this company. And I'm not going to give you the name of it yet. But what they've done is it's great. They took effectively all the nutrients that are in um, salmon, and they said, okay, we're going to create those that in a, a, not a pill, but in a cube, um, a gel-based cube, so that you would have 400 calories with all the exact same nutrients of salmon and sweet potatoes and kale, as a matter of fact, in one cube, and it's 400 calories. And right now the cost is three ninety to make, but the cost will go down to two dollars to two fifty, and then lower once we get to hundreds of thousands. These cubes, you're going to be able to just eat them, and so kids who aren't um, fully nourished or malnourished, um, kids who can't get breakfast, kids, you know, instead of grabbing candy at school, these things taste, taste like little candy gels, not as good as candy, but close enough, so that they can get four hundred calories for three dollars, let's say, or three fifty. And so those, that's the type of investment that is not AI per se because it's food and it's healthy food, um, but it's AI driven because that's how you do the analytics to determine how do you match up ingredients to the, con- to the nutrients of salmon and steak and kale and sweet potatoes, et cetera. And it's crazy when you think about it, but it also is going to be a, a thing for dieters because when I eat these things, like when there's one more French fry to eat, you're going to eat that French fry. Yeah. Right when there's more ice cream in the in the the pint, you're going to eat the rest of that ice cream. With this, that's all there is, and so there, you don't have that that inclination to just keep on eating like I do. And so, just changing the nature of how people consume food is AI derivative, but that's the type of thing that I think is going to have a huge impact. And then ten years from now, those gels will be personalized because one thing I'm learning as I age is that I could eat anything before and I wouldn't feel any different. You know, you get into your 40s yeah. and your 50s. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, well, wait, if I sweat too much, I need to eat a banana because of the potassium. And I immediately feel <laughs> I, I immediately feel it. Right. Or if I eat gluten, yeah. I never used to care. Now I get itchy. Right. So these little things that are that are how we personalize our diet and adapt the foods we eat. Those are all going to be built into personal algorithms that will define the food that we eat. And we'll have the choice of just consuming traditional foods based on a personalized, algorithmically driven diet based off of our bodies, which effectively are just this one big math equation. And we're just learning the variables a day at a time. And then it will also be extended into these little cubes. So 
going off on a tangent, but that's the kind of stuff I'm looking at. I love it. I just had the CEO of Beyond Meat on the show and the same vision, although he was much more of, you know, a cow is just a machine that produces meat and it was very, it was wild. There was some sci-fi yeah, stuff. Cool I think stuff. that stuff is so interesting. Mark Cuban, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for giving us all this time. Oh, no, it was fun. You know, uh, I, that was really fun. You could tell I, I love talking about this stuff. So anytime. All right, that was a wild conversation. Thank you so much to Mark Cuban for coming on the Vergecast. You can obviously find him. He's very available on Twitter. I'm sure he will tweet at you if you tweeted him. Say thank you. You can listen to other shows on the Box Media Podcast Network. Why'd you push that button? Put out a great episode last week. Ashley and Caitlin talked about why people are still using Snapchat. They interviewed our own Casey Newton. That is a powerhouse combination of personalities. Go listen to that episode of Button. It's available right now. Also, subscribe to Land of the Giants, the new podcast from Recode and the Box Media Podcast Network. It's a show about the major tech companies that have reshaped the world, hosted by Jason Del Rey. This season, all about Amazon. Episode one is out now. Go check it out. It's Land of the Giants. Also, subscribe to the Vergecast if you haven't. It's free in your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts is a monopoly. So if you're going to rate us and review us, do it there. I'm just being honest with you. It's a monopoly. That's where the ratings count. Go rate us and review us there. Give us five stars. Talk to me on Twitter. I'm at Reckless. I'd love your feedback on the show. Love to know who you'd like me to talk to. Love to know just what you think. What'd you have for lunch? Let me know. I'm at Reckless. Lastly, we're back on Friday with Dieter and Paul to talk about the week in tech. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.